Welcome to the Money Answer Show with host Jordan Goodman. Whether you are starting out, deep into your retirement, or somewhere in between, the Money Answer Show has the know-how to help you. Now here's your host, Jordan Goodman. Welcome to the Money Answer Show. This is Jordan Goodman, your host. My guest this hour is Kerry Lutz. He is the founder of the Financial Survival Network and also author of a new book called Viral Podcasting, A Proven Process to Earn a Six-Figure Income from Your Show. Welcome to the show, Kerry. Hey, Jordan. It's a pleasure to be here with you. So let's, for people who have not heard about you before, just kind of give a brief history of uh, your background and how you created Financial Survival Network before we get to the book. Oh, sure thing. And yeah, I was a lawyer for 30 years, and once the financial crisis uh, hit, I studied Austrian economics in college and saw it for what it was, said, you know, I'm tired of being a lawyer. I want to find something more meaningful. And basically, with Financial Survival Network, it's telling people that things are not normal here. The economy has never gone back to normal after, after the crash, and you need to be prepared not necessarily that uh, we're coming to the apocalypse, although we just got done with the apocalypse. But, uh, you know, the fact is things are changing around the world. Power structures are changing. The economy is changing. And you need to be prepared for it. Otherwise, if things really uh, go, go south, uh, you're just going to be wiped out. So what can people find at financialsurvivalnetwork.com? Well, I look at myself as a messenger, if you will, a messenger of, not of gloom and doom, but of empowerment. Uh, I have financial experts, uh, both mainstream and what you would call alternative. Um, not sure what the difference is anymore, but there is a difference, I assure you. And I just pump out as much viewpoints and as many different speakers as I can so that you'll be informed and uh, you'll make your own decisions because allowing uh, others to make decisions for you is a recipe for, for major uh, failure. So uh, in creating Financial Survival Network, you also found that that could be a profitable business in itself. And that led you to want to write this book, Viral Broadca- Podcasting. Just before we get into some of the details, Give us a sense of the podcasting market and how big it is and how many podcasts out there and how it's growing. Just give an overall view of the podcasting market. Sure. Well, first, I guess we should define a podcast, which is very difficult to do. I would call it Internet radio, where people make programs on any subject, hundreds of thousands of different people podcasting. Last count, 350,000 headed for a million in a few years around the world. However, the U.S., English-speaking countries are really the epicenter of the podcast revolution. And then you can download that, that material. You can stream it live and listen to it uh, like we're doing here. Uh, so uh, basically what I found was uh, that uh, my goal was first, before earning any profits from it, build as big an audience as possible. And we've got tens of thousands of people that tune in every day to financialsurvivalnetwork.com and listen to the show or download it. And, and then uh, after that, uh, I realized, hey, you know, most people who are podcasting, half of them get less than 200 listens or downloads per show. You know what? They, there's a market out here that really needs to 
understand how you build an audience and how you connect with people you don't know by the thousands. And you build your audience one member at a time, but you could be building it to thousands of people one at a time every show. And, you know, I just came up with a lot. For four years, I made no profits off the show. And then two years ago, things just really, really took off. Now people uh, who've got podcasts that want to uh, make them go viral uh, hire me to help uh, do their show. I co-host shows. I produce half a dozen shows. And it's it's a real industry out there that's uh, it's over a billion dollars in ad revenue now. Uh, the problem is most people don't know how to uh, tap into that ad revenue. They don't know how to make their podcast into a successful business. And, uh, in fact, uh, there's even uh, parts in the uh, book where I talk about your methods, how you've become popular, and how you've uh, financially succeeded in podcasting, Internet radio. Yeah, I've been doing this show for over 10 years, so we're, we're, we're both into the same uh, topic here. So tell me, what is the difference between a successful podcast and a small one that never really gets off the ground. What What is the, the the secret sauce, I guess you might say, that makes it very popular for people? Well, the key is know your market. And you might very well have a tiny niche that will make you very wealthy, or you might have a humongous audience that, uh, that has no money that will never buy anything uh, from your sponsors. And I give the example of I'd rather have a 1,000 people who own Gulfstream airliners, private airplanes, uh, you know, that go for tens of millions of dollars. I'd rather have a thousand or 2000 of them than a million and a half millennials who live in their parents' uh, basement or attic and basically uh, can't pay back their student debt and are uh, stuck in the mud. Which market would you rather have? So know your market. You need to have passion and that this is not just another career. This to me, and I know to you, uh, Jordan, is a calling. It's something that you wouldn't do if there was no money involved. You'd still be doing what you're doing because you love doing it. Obviously, to do it long-term, you need to earn a return on your time invested and the, the little bit of capital. The nice thing about podcasting is you need very little money to get started. And Whereas 10 years ago when you started, it was much easier because there was less competition. Now there's a lot of competition, but there's hundreds of times more people listening to podcasts every day of the week. There's millions, uh, by one count, 35 million people, Americans uh, a week listen to a podcast. That's a huge audience that you can connect with if you follow the right steps. And number one Know who you're talking to, your market. Number two, be passionate. Number three, treat it like a business. Have a business plan. Uh, maybe you're not going to go out and get huge investors uh, to uh, finance your podcast, although people have. There are ones out there like Serial and uh, and others that are that venture capitals put tens of millions of dollars into them. But uh, if you're passionate and you make this your life's work you can succeed at it if you follow the steps that I outlined in the book, which not that I'm a genius, Jordan, not that I've figured this thing out um, foolproof, but uh, having been in business, handled 
done many startups, uh, probably a couple dozen startups, having done turnarounds and, and such, I figured out a formula that can make you successful in this business. So you talk in the book about multiple income streams. What are some of the income streams and how realistic is it that people would be able to line those up for their podcasts? Well, you know, it's all a question of goal setting, too. We should talk about goals. As the wise man said, if you don't know where you're going, any road will take you there. So you need to have achievable, common-sense goals. Don't be afraid to, to shoot for the moon or shoot for the stars and settle for the moon. That's okay. Um, so goal setting, extremely, extremely important. And then with multiple income streams, it's, I look at it as a four- or five-legged stool. You've got your podcast itself. Then you're going to have a website that carries all of your podcasts, and you're going to put additional articles or what we like to call in the biz content there. And you can be use other people's content. doesn't have to all be original content by you. And then you're going to uh, pick out the right guests so that you will get a lot of listens and downloads to your show. And, and then, you know, you start with um, maybe – you know, maybe I love to do, uh, there's different formulas for the show too. Like if you've already got a business, if, let's say you were already a financial planner, then starting your own podcast, it's what's called authoritative marketing. And you put your, you put yourself out there, you do a quality show and people will start writing into you and they'll start recognizing you as an expert. So that's one way to achieve an additional stream of income to your current business, what I would call brand extension. You, you create the podcast, and that's going to bring more people into your existing business. Maybe you're an expert in ski equipment, and you've got a very specialty niche store for really high-end advanced skiers. And then you start a podcast for that, and all of a sudden you've got people from all over the world you know, buying your products uh, online from your store as a result. And then there's also uh, sponsors. Let's say you're a world-class, you know, uh, pedal boarder, paddle boarder, rather, you know, one of those boards that you paddle on, and you're really great, and you're famous, you know, mild, uh, a minor celebrity at it. And then the leading... A uh, manufacturer of pedal boards says, hey, we'd love you to do a podcast or we'd love to sponsor your podcast, only us, and we'll pay you X amount. So if you're a minor celebrity already or known to the public, that's another way that you can do it. And then there's ways of hey, get get people, affiliate uh, uh, companies to, to advertise on your site, to advertise on your podcast. Um, in addition you'll do a YouTube channel because now when you create your show, it's very easy to automatically post it to YouTube. And I call YouTube the largest podcast website server in the world where normally you have to pay to host your, your shows on a podcast server because the bandwidth requirements for podcasting like video are extremely high. If you're getting a lot of traffic, uh, no, can't use a regular website for it. So at that point, uh, advertisers come in and they want to be on your show. And then YouTube, you're not going to make much money off of YouTube, but you use it to funnel traffic, to funnel listeners to your podcast. 
And so it doesn't website. have to be video only. You're saying YouTube, even though it's mostly video, can be just pure audio as well. Oh. Uh, if you don't have to. Yeah. It could be, um, there's like uh, podcast servers that will automatically post your audio show to YouTube as a video. And it's actually better that way because you can't really watch a video while you're driving, but you can listen to an audio. And much of your listenership as well as mine, many of your community members listen to you when they're stuck in traffic on the 405 in L.A. or the FDR Drive in uh, Manhattan or yeah. um, 95 uh, in Miami, wherever it might be. Any place where people are in their cars with smartphones now, they can be listening to your show and participating. And then you do a newsletter. Every good podcast I know out there has a newsletter that goes out. You build a mailing list. And then you can market things to people on that mailing list. And those are just a few ways to build multiple streams of income. And it all depends on your market and your goals, how good you're going to get at this, how big it's going to get. Very good. We're going to take a break. Uh, this is Jordan Goodman of The Money Answer Show. I'm speaking with Kerry Lutz. He's the author of a new book called Viral Podcasting, A Proven Process to Earn a Six-Figure Income from Your Show. A website you can find out more about it is viralpodcasting.com. We'll be back after this. We're always talking business. Talk to an expert. Call now, toll free, 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. Bob Pritchard has over 30 years of experience as a straight-talking business consultant and author working with some of the top Fortune 500 companies. Now he's come to the Voice America Business Channel to help you and your business. Tune in to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show for information about starting and successfully running a profitable business. From the movers and shakers to great marketing screw-ups, you can't afford to miss a single edition of the Bob Pritchard Radio Show, Tuesdays at 5 p.m. Pacific, 8 p.m. Eastern on Voice America Business. Leadership is a vital skill set in today's competitive global economy. Being a leader is not enough. To succeed, you must optimize your performance and know how to imbue others in your organization with leadership skills. Practical, actionable leadership insights are the focus of Leadership Development News, hosted each Monday at 9 a.m. Pacific, noon Eastern, by Kathy Greenberg and Relly Nadler on the Voice America Business Channel. Doctors Greenberg and Nadler, who coach global leaders on how to be most effective, will share their insights and contacts. The path to leadership excellence begins here. We're always talking business. Talk to an expert. Call now. Toll free. 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. You've been listening to The Money Answer Show with Jordan Goodman. If you have a question for Jordan or his guest, please call us now at 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Now back to Jordan. Welcome back to The Money Answer Show. This is Jordan Goodman, your host. My guest this hour is Kerry Lutz. He's the founder of the Financial Survival Network, which you can find out about at financialsurvivalnetwork.com. Also the author of a new book we just spoke about called Viral Podcasting, which you can find out about at viralpodcasting.com. Welcome back to the show, Kerry. Hey, always a pleasure, Jordan. 
So we're going to talk about the economy and investing and all the other topics you talk about at Financial Survival Network all, uh, all the time. So let's just kind of start with an overall view of the U.S. economy, what you think is happening, and what will be the impact of these hurricanes we've had now in Texas and Florida on the economy. Is that going to depress economic activity? Is that going to be a spur or the re- rebuilding? Or what is your view on where we stand in the economic cycle right now? Well, you know, like a natural disaster is like a, it's like a, a city or a country having undergone a war. Um, what's the purpose of a war? It's to destroy capital. And then uh, if you're fortunate enough to get attacked by the United States, uh, we'll help rebuild your country better than it was before. Uh, but seriously, you know, it's not a net plus for the economy. Yes, it might um, it might result in increased economic activity, certainly in construction. In Houston, you had so many cars lost. Uh, I don't know what the latest count is because I've been kind of news-deprived for the past two days because nothing has been up there except uh, except about uh, Hurricane Irma. But uh, does it really uh, improve the economy? Well, it's like saying, um, I remember there was a guy, uh, a gangster, and he'd go around New York City with a slingshot and bolts, and he'd break windows, and then uh, the insurance company would call him, and he'd have to replace the windows. So, yeah, like that pumped money into the economy. Uh, he had more work to do and, you know, kept people employed, but did that really add meaningfully to the, to the economy at large? when it's just replacing something that's already there. Now, obviously, they're going to replace it. Any of these buildings that you see that got demolished, especially in Houston, probably with better than what's there now. But on the other hand, you've got the federal flood insurance program, which is insolvent and has to be uh, reauthorized. Why should uh, why should the average uh, taxpayer be paying uh, for people in luxury homes in flood areas to keep building their homes over and over again. It seems like kind of dumb. There needs to be a limit there, and maybe there's a place in the world for private flood insurance with Uncle Sam being the ultimate reinsurer, perhaps. But, you know, we can't keep doing this. It isn't helping the economy. It's going to drive us further and further into debt. The state of... Um, many of you out there so you don't even have half people don't even have 500 bucks to provide for an emergency and you know these people they're going to get federal disaster loans all these sba loans and uh they're just going to go more into debt is that going to increase productivity in a meaningful way that will help the economy my feeling is probably not if we were lucky it'd be a zero-sum game but more likelihood we're going to spend a lot more than we realize in productivity just to get things back to normal. Now, I'm not saying you can't, that uh, a place like Houston, you have to rebuild it. It's vital to the U.S. economy, the energy industry, that's where it's at. The refining uh, industry for uh, crude oil into uh, distillates, it's headquartered in that Gulf Coast there. So that you know, obviously has to be rebuilt, but private industry would be rebuilding that under any circumstances. Uh, You know, there's just so many failures that have become apparent because of these floods. Uh, 
subsidizing people and enticing you to live in flood-prone areas like Key West in Florida. Uh, you know, 30 years ago, there were 20-something thousand people living there, Jordan. Now there's 80,000, and they're all starting from square one. Um, and, you know, I'm not buying into the climate change argument here. I think we went 12 years without a hurricane making landfall in the U.S. Um, or in Florida, and the, the time clock just ran out. Uh, yeah. Why didn't we have a hurricane for all that time? But getting back to the economics of it, it's, it's really not constructive for the U.S. economy to be having to shell out money that we don't have printed out of the printing press to rebuild these areas, which will then be prone to future floods. Hopefully, you know, uh, you go to places like in South Carolina and you see there are houses built up on stilts and, you know, the first floor, it's like 12 feet so they can accommodate the storm surge. But there still were houses with newer construction that have been destroyed. How much can you fortify a house to make it that it'll be still affordable and yet be able to resist large storms? Um, I don't know that you can ever do enough short of yeah. building bunkers and yeah. con- pure eight-foot concrete walls, which no, only the government can afford that, you know? <laughs> yes, no individuals indeed. can afford so, it. So, so just talk a little for a moment about how Federal Reserve policy uh, has been going and if it might change, if this is an economic depressant in the short term, uh, may, maybe that'll change the Federal Reserve policy to raise interest rates. And just kind of give me a sense of what you think where we stand yeah. with Federal Reserve policy now. Well, I think the Fed was already pulling back from the so-called normalization of rates. Uh, we'd had four or five rate increases, 25 basis points on the Fed funds rate. I think that's over. And I think that the flood in Houston and now the hurricane in Florida have provided an excellent uh, justification to the Federal Reserve to, to put the uh, gas pedal back on monetary creation I think you're seeing something similar, the opposite of that happening in Canada. You know, the Canadian dollar was depressed against the U.S. dollar since uh, 2012, I think, is when it started going down. It was, it was actually $1.17 um, to buy one Canadian dollar, and then it was down to $0.72 cents or $0.03. Cents, and now it's, I didn't look today yet, but it was about $0.82 or $0.83 cents last time I looked. So that's a tremendous run-up uh, in the past four months for a currency that was like uh, fit for the garbage can. And the Aussie dollar is going up too. So somehow they were anticipating that the Fed was going to back off from normalization and they maybe not loosen up rates because how much, how much above zero can they, how much below zero can they go? Do we go negative? They saw the Fed had been signaling the economy was weakening, and we got to do something about it. You know, you can't blame the Fed. They've been charged with an impossible mission, and that is to keep price levels stable and keep employment up. I don't know how you do both, and I don't know that it's government's business to be doing both, but that's what they've told the Federal Reserve to do by law, and I don't know how you do both. So let's talk about inflation and deflation. I can see both arguments that there should be more inflation. We've created all this money out of thin air. 
There are signs of deflation where there's too much supply of things like oil and so on. Where do we stand globally on the inflation versus deflation scale? Well, on the one hand, if you're buying commodities, if your business is buying oil for your company because your company requires fuel for its operations, you know, you're seeing deflation. If you're an average American and you want to send your kid to, co- to college, if you want to, um, you know, buy medical insurance, if you want to buy <laughs> car insurance or now property insurance, you never saw those things go down. They've not been decreasing. Maybe property and casualty stabilized for a while, maybe went down for a little because there were no disasters, but any other kind of insurance, car insurance keeps going up. You have to hire a lawyer. I defy you to show me the lawyer who's cut his prices because of deflation. So you've got things that you want and things that you need. The things that you need, I haven't seen food really meaningfully uh, pull back on prices. And now with commodities, uh, they've gone way up. Corn, wheat, uh, soy, all of these things have gone way up recently. And that could very well be the uh, beginning of another commodity inflationary cycle, if you will. Um, you know, I just don't see uh, this deflation in the economy um, the way that it's made out to be. Yeah, maybe for a while if you wanted a car, things were cheaper, but, but because of all the cheap credit, they were able to raise the price of uh, an SUV, a fully tricked out F-150 from 35000 I've seen them as high as 65000 now. So that doesn't look like deflation to me. And, you know, we might very well see it after what's happened now, but I've never really bought in to the deflationary argument. So if there's more inflation than people think there is, or the official government numbers which say 1.4% inflation, something like that now, do you think the Federal Reserve should be raising interest rates more? to head off that inflation, or if they keep rates down, will eventually that inflation get out of hand? Yeah, well, I, uh, you know, I think uh, it, it's also the dollar is the world reserve currency. That's eroding. So I don't know what the proper uh, role for the Federal Reserve is, but uh, their main role is to bail out the big banks when they get into trouble. That's what happened in uh, 08, 09. And that, no doubt, will happen in the next crash, if and when it should occur. Their main purpose is to be the lender of last resort to Wall Street. So we need a complete realignment of the financial system where banks go back to loaning money to worthy, needing companies, companies that need to expand and are good credit risks. Banks now exist to finance the American dream for consumers, whether it's allowing you to afford a house that you wouldn't otherwise be able to afford or a car that you can't afford, the banking financial system has turned into this giant wish fulfillment machine, and it's not going to end well. So do you think that there need to be changes in Dodd-Frank? Was, was Dodd-Frank a, a positive or a negative? Supposedly that outlawed too big to fail. <sighs> yeah, it did, but it didn't. I mean, look... If one of the too-big-to-fail banks gets into trouble, I don't believe that the government is just going to let it fail. Now, what they should have done back in 08, 09 was fire the management, put it into a conservatorship, 
take all the bad assets out and create a good bank, good bank, bad bank, and then do that with all of the banks and basically redefine uh, the, the guarantee programs. Like they guarantee your student loans. They guarantee your housing loans. There's a whole bunch. They guarantee SBA loans. You know, you go, you go down the uh, line of all of the lending that they encourage. Where, where is it for the people to actually, um, you know, get loans that are going to help build the economy? Uh, that's what I'd like to know. Very good. We're going to take another break. This is Jordan Goodman of the Money Answer Show. My guest this hour is Kerry Lutz. He's the founder of Financial Survival Network. Uh, his website is financialsurvivalnetwork.com. He's also done the book about podcasting uh, called Viral Podcasting, and his website is viralpodcasting.com. We'll be back after this. Stocks, bonds, investment opportunities, financial news, and talk. We can help. Call us now toll-free, 866-472-5790. 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. Have you had a chance to check out Voice America's online magazine and blog, Press Pass? If you love our hosts and shows, check out articles that give an even deeper perspective. Plus topics about health and fitness, movie reviews, philosophy, business tips and tactics, spirituality, positive thought, current events, and even more about your favorite host. It's just a click away at VAPressPass.com. That's VAPressPass.com. VA Press Pass by Voice America. All access, all the time. From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. You've been listening to The Money Answer Show with Jordan Goodman. If you have a question for Jordan or his guest, please call us now at 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Now back to Jordan. Welcome back to The Money Answer Show. This is Jordan Goodman, your host. My guest this hour is Kerry Lutz. He's the founder of the Financial Survival Network, which you can find out more about at financialsurvivalnetwork.com. Welcome back to the show, Kerry. A pleasure, Jordan. So we talked about all this potential inflation, all these debts that have been taken on by governments and all these guarantees. So one solution that you've looked at for a long time is gold and silver. What is your outlook from where we are now towards gold and silver? And what do you think is the best way to play it? Physical gold, gold ETFs? Gold mining shares. What would be your favorite way to play it if you like gold? Well, you know, uh, I think that everybody should have some holding in physical gold. I'm not saying put a lot of your net worth into it, but if we have a situation like we had in the '70s where the dollar really takes a hit and really starts going down, uh, then presumably the price of gold should increase. And we've seen in the past year. Well, gold is actually flat or up $10 an ounce in the past year, in the past 365 days. But since the beginning of the year, it's up substantially. Uh, haven't had access to data the past couple of days, but it's trading around 1335 or so the ounce. And 13, it broke through 1300 a week and a half ago. That was a major resistance point. 
Silver has been lagging it, so it tells me that there'll probably be another pullback. And it looks like today it's down around $11, $15 the last time I looked. Like I say, I can't follow it on my desktop because my got no power here. But um, I think the prospects for it are pretty good, especially once you saw that the Federal Reserve was backing off of norm, so-called normalization of rates, uh, the prices of metals started going up. And, and so what, what now, you, you say have some physical uh, gold, but do you like gold mining shares or ETFs as another way to play gold? Um, I like uh, a number of gold mining companies. Uh, it's very difficult to pick a good mining company. Um, and there's two ways to call it good. You can get these speculative junior miners, which are explorers and development companies, and most of them will never build a mine. But once or so or twice a year, the shares are going to go up because the overall mining stock market goes up. On the other hand, if you're looking for real companies that will actually produce um, and actually wind up being sold out to bigger mining companies, in a lot of ways, the time we're getting to the time where it will never be better again because the big mining companies, your Barracks, your Newmont, your Gold Corps, they, much like the oil companies, have simply um, subcontracted out exploration and development of mines. So you'll have a company, and I don't want to give out names because I'm not, you know, I don't regard myself as the expert in this. There's a lot more people out there that are better than myself, but there are companies out there that have just got monster deposits in really good jurisdictions, like in the U.S. and Canada, where and they've got infrastructure. You know, one of the things, you should never buy a mining company that doesn't have a road that goes to the mine and doesn't have electricity uh, close by, because that the way things are today, that company, that mine will almost, no matter how high its ore grade, will never produce uh, gold or silver. But there are companies out there that are very, uh, very savvy managements. You know, you have to look first whenever you're getting into these stocks, Jordan, at the management. What yeah. have they done before? Have they been successful? And are they worth betting on? Because you're really betting. And the beauty is if gold and silver go up uh, substantially, which there's a possibility they might, they've gone up for a bit, I think they might be ready to take a breather. But if they go up substantially, then in the mining shares, you get leverage that, uh, you know, um, just last year, a company like, and I'm not recommending it by any stretch, uh, but uh, uh, First Majestic Silver, okay, one of the best pure play silver producers, went up from $4 to, I think, $17 in a matter of, uh, of a few months. And it's a really solid company. It's a, it produces real silver, uh, silver dory bars, and it's got great management. So you always have to look at management first and then, um, you know, think about the quality of the projects that they have. Or most of them are going to be Canadian companies. They're going to be listed on the Toronto, uh, the TSX V or Venture. And, you know, these companies are masters at, at basically figuring out the weak points of the SEC and figuring out the weak points of the Canadian stock, reg, uh, 
regulators, which Canadian stocks get regulated on the provincial level. There's no national regulator in Canada, so they can do things. So so you just have to find honest management, easier said than done, with with good projects, and then buy them when they're down. Uh, Don't buy them when they're up, because we buy them when they start hitting their 52-week highs, and they've been hitting them for a month or two, they'll almost certainly take a plunge at some point, and you're going to lose money on them. And I've made good money on these stocks in the past. I expect to make good money on them again. It's just a question of timing and of finding finding the good companies. And there's people that are better at it than I am. There's a guy named Jay Taylor who's a master at finding these stocks. And how about uh, doing it through an exchange-traded fund where you have a diversified portfolio instead of having just all your bets on one or two kind of explorer junior companies? Yeah, well, you have the GDX and the GDXJ. So they just revamped the GDXJ, and the companies on it aren't as small as they once were. So ETFs can be a good way to play an overall move in gold, but the index is going to be composed of companies that uh, are winners and companies that are just mediocre. But um, when you look at people's stock-picking prowess in the past, uh, you know, it doesn't take too much to realize that in any sector, had you gone with ETFs, you would be better off than um, going with uh, with individual stocks uh, picked by in a managed portfolio. I mean, there's very few of them that have really beat the index. Yeah. And uh, so we talked about gold and silver. How about platinum and palladium, the other two precious metals as investments right now? Yeah, well, they're... They're what are called the noble metals, and here's the thing. Most people would not know an ounce of platinum if it fell out of the sky and hit them in the head, and even less would know about palladium. So taking physical positions in them, well, look, right now we've got an anomalous situation that's been going on for two, three years, and that is that platinum is trading uh, 30%. An ounce of platinum is trading for 30% less and an ounce of gold. And that is a major anomaly that we've only seen very few times in the past. This is the longest run it's had. So uh, I would say they're very small markets, they're very marginal markets, and that means that uh, they can be uh, jiggered and rejiggered at a moment's notice. So you have to be very sophisticated before you start playing with them because it's easy, really easy to get burned there. Uh, but I think there is opportunity. Right now, Palladian is heading for near parity with platinum, which is a strange oddity indeed because uh, platinum is a much, their main use in industry besides jewelry for platinum is in catalytic converters in automobiles, the things that get rid of the pollution and the smog from your tailpipe. Yeah. And the thing is that platinum is a much better catalyst than palladium and yet palladium's almost at par. Where do we get those metals from? Primarily, uh, palladium comes from Russia. Platinum comes from Russia and South Africa. They haven't been investing in those mines for years. The price has been below the cost of production in many of them. So I would say it's a long-winded answer, but if you know what you're doing, you probably can make huge returns in platinum, 
Palladium is trading at its high, multi-year high, so you have to be very careful of that one because if they dump palladium and rush into platinum, platinum is going to go up past the price of gold probably, uh, at least possibly, and palladium is going to take a hit. So you really have to know these markets far better than I do, and I I don't want to sound like an expert in them. I understand them. And I do understand the opportunity in platinum, but be very careful. I wouldn't recommend buying physical either of those. Uh, At least if you're in my position, you wouldn't be buying physical because uh, the whole purpose of having a physical precious metals holding is an insurance policy for stupid government. Yes. Um, Beyond precious metals, are there other areas of the stock market that you would like at current levels? You know, it's so high, but I believe the reason it's high is it's really a flight capital play. And that's the reason why I believe that even... And the other thing is, everyone says the stock market is too high, it's overvalued, it's headed for a plunge. Now, if if there were only a couple of people saying that, Jordan, I'd say, you know what, those guys, they just might be the contrarians that are right. But everyone is saying it, and you know as well as I know, you've been in this game longer than I have. Stocks climb on a wall of worry. And if that isn't a wall of worry, what's taking place now, I don't know what is. So I believe that the stock market could well go higher and probably will go higher, especially if there are concerns about sovereign debt. I don't think that problem's been solved yet. And people say, well, I can get a 2% return on this stock, and it looks like the dividend is pretty pretty stable. I'd rather buy Apple than T-bills uh, for my long-term portfolio. I think you've seen that happen, and you see central banks all over the world, Jordan, buying stocks, uh, Switzerland, yes. Bank of Japan, um, probably China's buying it too, but they're not very transparent. But uh, maybe the ECB is buying it and not telling us either. They are. I mean, they're running out of things to buy, actually. <laughs> yes. Yeah. And, and that's the other thing. You know, the, the, the Bank of Japan owns like 60% of all these ETFs in Japan. I mean, yes. is that part of their mandate to be buying stocks to keep the stock market up? Or why are they doing it? Nobody's given me a good explanation of why they're doing it other than the fact that they've got all these dollars. They have nothing else better to do with them. Let's put them in the stock. Very good. All right, we're going to take another break. Uh, this is Jordan Goodman of the Money Answer Show. My guest this hour is Kerry Lutz. He's the founder of the Financial Survival Network that talks about all these issues all the time. You can find out more at his website, financialsurvivalnetwork.com. And his book about podcasting is called Viral Podcasting. His website for that is viralpodcasting.com. We'll be back after this. From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. We hear it and read about it every day in the news. America. 
America is heading over a fiscal cliff. Home prices are still receding and unemployment growing. How can you preserve and increase your wealth in this kind of economy? Tune in to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with host Jay Taylor. Jay will explain the decline of our monetary system and the economy and will give you winning investment ideas and the tools to protect and increase your wealth. Turning Hard Times into Good Times with Jay Taylor can be heard Tuesdays at 3 p.m. Eastern Time, 12 noon Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Get the news on our shows and other happenings by following us on Twitter. Find us at VoiceAmericaTRN or Twitter.com forward slash VoiceAmericaTRN. You've been listening to The Money Answer Show with Jordan Goodman. If you have a question for Jordan or his guest, please call us now at 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Now back to Jordan. Welcome back to The Money Answer Show. This is Jordan Goodman, your host. My guest this hour is Carrie Lutz, founder of the Financial Survival Network, his website, financialsurvivalnetwork.com. Welcome back to the show, Carrie. Hey, it's a pleasure, Jordan. So now we're going to do the lightning round here in our last segment. So what do you think is going to happen with President Trump's agenda in Congress? Uh, Health care, tax reform, infrastructure, deregulation, all the things he's talking about. What are that's actually going to end up happening? Well, you know, we were all a bit negative. Last time you were on my show, you were negative about it. I believe that it's going to go through because he just, he slammed the leadership of the GOP, the Republican Party, the GOPE, known as the GOP establishment or elite, take your pick. And he just made a debt deal with Nancy, his good buddies, Nancy and Chuck, had him to the White House. They couldn't have been more friendly. And the message went out, because if you looked like, um, if you looked at Mitch McConnell and, uh, and Paul Ryan when they're sitting in the White House there, and they have no choice, they have to be there. They can't say, well, you screwed us, so we're just going to sit this one out. Well, Mitch McConnell looked like a jackass that got hit over his head with a two-by-four because he wouldn't move. <laughs> and Paul Ryan was a bit of a doddering fool, you know, because... Hey, it's like, well, just last week, Mitch McConnell said, the president doesn't run Congress, we do. And then this week, it's like he wanted to extend the debt ceiling past the election. And um, Trump said, no, we're not going to do it. Uh, We have to get this thing passed. You're not playing politics with uh, FEMA. So you think think that will go beyond this particular debt ceiling to other parts of his agenda that it will get done? Yeah. Definitely. Um, uh, I think this was a tectonic change, and they realized that uh, if they want their buddies uh, getting their subsidies, you know, that's all the GOP cares about is the Chamber of Commerce Republicans and how to get their guys more and more. If they want uh, anything for their people, they're going to have to play ball. And, you know, the proof that Mitch McConnell was trying to have it both ways. Like, I'm really trying to repeal Obamacare. Um, but I just can't find the votes. The proof that he's lying about that, it was 49 votes to 51 against. 49 for 51 against. The majority leader has the right, um, when he's voting on a piece of legislation, to vote against it so that he then has the right to bring it back for another vote. He voted for it. So his vote for repeal of Obamacare was really a vote against 
repeal of Obamacare. And Trump got that message loud and clear, and he just slammed both of them. And now it's, it's a whole new paradigm. But I think we, I'm, I'm hoping we get to the point where partisan politics is starting to fall by the wayside and that uh, the people realize they've got to do something. The Republicans are starting to get scared. They've accomplished absolutely nothing since uh, Trump's election except some minor technical things that we don't need to go into. They're meaningless yeah. to you and the average American. So his agenda is going to go through, not exactly the way he wants it, but tax cut, tax reform definitely is going to happen. Something is going to happen with Obamacare. Um, I don't want to predict what it's going to be, but something is going to happen with it. So the agenda is going to go through. Uh, but, you know, like uh, what is... Washington, D.C., what do they make? They don't manufacture anything in that city except sausage. And that's when a law goes through Congress and it goes, it gets ground up and spit out into a, a casing. And that's what they do best in uh, Washington, D.C., is make sausage. Let's go to Europe now. Uh, what do you think of the European Central Bank's policy to purchase assets to support their economy and their markets? The markets have been up. The economy has been better. Is, is the ECB like a magic company, central bank here that's making it all going to work out well in the long run? No, the central banks can't, are not financial alchemists. You know, they can't make, uh, take lead and turn it into gold. I mean, it'd be great if they could, but then there'd be too much gold in the world and uh, gold wouldn't be worth anything if they could. So they're not alchemists. It's going to end badly, just like it has here in the U.S. It's, they're just rotating so one minute U.S. is doing it, the next minute they're doing it. They look, they're pretending that they're going to tighten up. So the euro has been going up against the dollar, which is what Trump wants because it's uh, better for American exports. But in the reality, you can't create wealth out of nothing. Wealth gets created, in, at least in the classical economic sense, and I don't think it's been repealed yet. Wealth gets created where citizens produce they have excess production, they delay consumption and invest it to earn a return, and then companies take, take those savings and invest it in more productivity. I know that's kind of old-fashioned and square, and you could make arguments it doesn't apply in this economy, and yet uh, it's worked pretty good for China over the past couple of decades. That's, yeah. that's exactly what they did. It worked good for Japan when they were doing it, I don't think it's out of date. I don't think it's uh, it's a ridiculous notion to think that a it's better for a society to be a saving society of producers than it is for a society to be out out consumers consuming everything in sight, whether they can afford it or not. How do you think Brexit is going to work out now that that's going ahead? And that's a great question. Um, <laughs> I had dinner with a couple of friends uh, during the uh, hurricane up in Orlando, and they're, they're Brits, and they voted against Brexit. And this guy, Daryl, he's all upset because they're going to be instituting uh, tariffs on British goods throughout the EU, and, you know, he doesn't see it. I think it's going to be better than they thought. You know, there's, look, it's in the EU's uh, best interest to make an example of Great Britain and cause them the maximum amount of financial economic pain possible 
to prevent others from from doing their own exits from the euro. But as long as um, as long as the uh, ECB and the EU, the European uh, Economic Union, uh, as long as they're pushing this uh, immigration open borders agenda, there's going to be a lot of people who aren't happy with it, especially in Eastern Europe. We're talking countries like Hungary and and others who have had enough. And now the EU is trying to force them to take more refugees, and they're saying no. So we're approaching yeah. an impasse there shortly. Others are going to follow. Maybe it's going to be Greece. Maybe it's going to be Spain. Maybe it's going to be Italy. Who knows? I can't say. But it was a bad notion from the get-go. Because as one of my guests, Martin Armstrong, said, is you can have a common currency. That's all well and good. But if you don't have a common debt instrument, which he warned them about when they were forming the whole euro, and they knew it, uh, but they just said, we'll take care of it later. If you don't have that common debt instrument, then you're going to have nothing but grief because uh, certain countries just can't hold up their end of the bargain and don't want to. And uh, let, let, let's, We have a short amount of time. Let's just go briefly to North Korea. Uh, are we going to have nuclear war with North Korea, and how is that going to work out? Well, you know, it's kind of like China is holding all the cards there. Um, as long, if China starts to see North Korea as a, a liability, which I think they are, um, because I think it's Trump confronting China saying, look, if anyone who trades with North Korea we're going to have an embargo on. Uh, that is instant Great Depression for China. I mean, they are like, they're, they're just, they're going to have a revolution if that really happens, Jordan. So how serious is he? I don't know. But it's certainly along the theme of America first. And can you imagine a U.S. embargo of Chinese goods? Be really rough on both sides. Okay. And so I just want to yeah. end with what, what black swan event do you think, are you looking for that might surprise people and affect the markets? Well, I think we just had two black swans here. Um, we had uh, we had Irma and we had Hurricane Harvey. If those aren't black swans, I don't know what is. Gold started moving up right before then, right before those two hurricanes. Um, so, you know, black swans, it's, it's the things you think you know, but you don't really know that are very dangerous, as Mark Twain said. Those are the things that do you in. So I can't say for sure, but I think that uh, a dollar crash is a black swan that, you know, if we start having economic warfare, is very possible. I don't know for sure. Uh, I don't see it. But, um, you know, you do see that uh, China is trying to assert the primacy of the yuan, um, I think they've got a lot of problems doing it, but if somehow okay. they were able to really establish credibility for the yuan on international markets, that, that could be the black swan there. Very good. We have really to end, good. unfortunately. Uh, my guest this hour has been Kerry Lutz. He's the founder of the Financial Survival Network. You can find out more at his website, financialsurvivalnetwork.com, and also his book on viral podcasting at viralpodcasting.com. Talked about a lot of interesting things. So thanks so much for being a guest on the Money Answer Show, Kerry. Anytime, Jordan. It's a pleasure. Thanks again. We'll be back next week with another edition of the Money Answer Show. Goodbye for now.
Thank you for joining Jordan Goodman and the Money Answer Show. If you have a question for Jordan, please visit his website at www.moneyanswers.com. And be sure to tune in every Monday at 12 p.m. Pacific Standard Time right here on Voice America Business. See you next week.